the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. The Death of Empty Forms, Chalcedon Position Paper, Number 101 Men through the ages have commonly trusted in some political form, religious ritual, or social organization as the hope of mankind. Rome believed that simplification and centralization would solve the problems of state, and thereby Rome made the empire unwieldy and unworkable. The early centuries after Rome's fall saw a marked decentralization, the feudal era. This also created problems while solving some, and the quote solution unquote was sought in a strong Holy Roman Empire and a strong papacy. The empire was to provide protection against the coming of Antichrist. We still have the symbol of the Holy Roman Empire with us, the dollar sign, the two vertical strokes representing the pillars of Hercules and the wavy bank, a scroll. The empire was a faith in the necessity for holy power and the mastery of nations. The papacy centralized power in itself to provide an international court of appeals for justice. For a time, both church and empire served their purposes but became themselves the targets of reform. The conciliar movement aimed at a broader church authority and the national states undermined imperial power. The Reformation also sought to broaden the basis of power and authority within the church. In the Puritan Commonwealth era in the 17th century, both in church and state, the desire for decentralization was strong. This was a hope strongly shared by Christians and humanists. It was basic to the Independents, Presbyterians, Anabaptists, and others. One man, Henry Martin, a wealthy man who championed unpopular causes, the Irish, the Levelers, Prisons for Debt, and others, said of the monarchy, quote, I do not think one man wise enough to govern us all, unquote. Certainly Charles I lacked that wisdom. Martin's solution was a republic which for him meant an honest civil government. His reason for this hope he clearly stated, quote, The people have this advantage in their choice, that they are incapable of being bribed, C.M. Williams, quote, The Anatomy of a Radical Gentleman, Henry Martin, unquote. In Donald Pennington and Keith Thomas, E.D.S., Puritans and Revolutionaries, pages 118 through 138, Oxford, England, Clarendon Press, 1978 and 1982. 
Martin's faith in the people was naive. Like kings and nobles, they could be bribed. In contemporary U.S. politics, votes are purchased by subsidies to virtually every group in society, corporations, labor, the, quote, senior, unquote, citizens, minority groups, and so on and on. Theories about the infallibility of the people, in example, Rousseau's doctrine of the general will, are now appearing to be as invalid as the divine right of kings. In the late 15th century in Russia, the Josephite doctrine of the Tsar was developed. It held that, quote, the Tsar was similar to humans only by nature, but by the authority of his rank similar to God. He derived his authority directly from God, and his judgment could not be overruled by that of any prelate, unquote. Arthur Voice, Moscow and the Roots of Russian Culture, page 16, Norman, Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma Press, 1964. Rousseau's thinking about the general will gave a like authority to the democratic expression or the democratic consensus, as many call it now. Michael Kamen has shown in A Machine That Would Go of Itself, The Constitution in American Culture, 1986, how Americans have commonly had a blind trust that the constitutional form would preserve freedom and justice. No thought was given to the fact that man's depravity can turn any form, monarchy, republic, democracy, or anything else into an instrument of tyranny. We have seen tyranny triumph repeatedly in history, whatever the legal safeguards or the forms of government. All the well-devised hopes and schemes of men are destroyed by the fact that man is a sinner. Without Christ, he will corrupt any and all forms of civil and ecclesiastical polity. This trust in forms is equally prevalent in the church. Jeremiah spoke of the false trust of Jerusalem in having, quote, the temple of the Lord, unquote, Jeremiah 7, 4. An apostate people trusted in the sacrificial system, in example, in atonement as ritual rather than of faith with works. And Jose condemned this, declaring, quote, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, unquote. Jose 6, 6. Our Lord twice cites these words of Jose, Matthew nine thirteen, twelve, and 7. Yet I am often assured by churchmen that their particular forms and observance of baptism and communion assure the purity of their church. They forget that their observances can also ensure their damnation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine double F. Such, quote, celebrations, unquote, are frightening. This does not mean that forms in civil and ecclesiastical policy or in rituals and sacraments are nothing. It does mean that, just as faith without works is dead, James 2, 14-26, so too works, forms, rights, polities, and governments without faith are dead also. The modern faith is strongly in the forms. One of the shapers of 20th century United States was Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. He openly questioned whether, quote, if cosmically... And idea is any more important than the bowels, unquote. or quote, if man is any more significant than a baboon or a grain of sand. Unquote. 
He denied God emphatically and man also. Of pacifism and a concern for human life, he said, quote, All isms seem to me silly. But this hyper-theorial respect for human life seems perhaps the silliest of all, unquote. Rocco J. Tressolini, Justice in the Supreme Court, pages 67, 72, Philadelphia, J.B. Lippincott, 1963. In such a perspective, man being nothing, truth and justice are nothing. All that remains is the power state. All this is a prescription for tyranny. The best constitution in the world is worthless if justice is meaningless. The forms are no protection if men are without faith. Antinomianism is finally anti-life and pro-tyranny and death. Repeatedly in history, as empty forms replace faith and works, and as fame takes precedence over character, every area of life and thought is affected adversely. John Pearson has called attention to the fact that the modern temper has affected the British monarchy and is, quote, a phenomenon of immense importance to the future of the monarchy, unquote. This, he points out, has been, quote, the virtual extinction of the cult of human greatness, which had been steadily succeeded by something rather different, the cult of the celebrity, unquote. John Pearson, The Selling of the Royal Family, page 193, New York, Simon & Schuster, 1986. Whether in the sphere of popular music, politics, the church, or the arts, celebrity has replaced greatness. This has been very sharply in evidence in such cases as Andy Warhol, rock and roll groups, and so on. The very word, quote, celebrity, unquote, is a curious one. It comes from, quote, celebrate, unquote, and, quote, celebration, unquote the root idea of which is in Latin a good, well-traveled road, a way to a place. Its historic reference has been extensively ritualistic, that is, to celebrate marriage, the celebration of communion, or of the Mass, or of baptism, and so on. The focus is religious, communal, or ritual. With, quote, celebrity, unquote, However, there is a radical shift from a people united in a common act to a focus on an individual. It is now the celebration of an individual, a, quote, celebrity, unquote. One can perhaps suggest that the modern ritual is the elevation of the individual, the celebrity, instead of the bread and wine, in example, the body and blood of Christ. The word reveals a climax of emptiness. When the faith is removed, the forms collapse. Institutions and constitutions then become empty and meaningless, and justice gives way to celebrities and to political briberies. Nothing works because our world does not depend upon mechanical forms in church and state, but on a living faith, a faith with works. When so influential a judge as Holmes regarded man as worth no more than a baboon or a grain of sand, and respect for human life as the silliest of illusions, is it any wonder that murder, rape, abortion, and euthanasia are increasing? Indeed, baboons and criminals are often given a better status before the law than godly men. Forms have their place, but forms cannot save us. The people who trusted in, quote, the temple of the Lord, unquote, 
went into captivity, even as we now are doing, because our trust is in something other than the Lord of history. U.S. Justice Wiley B. Rutledge expressed his faith in 1947 in a declaration of legal faith thus, quote, I believe in law. At the same time, I believe in freedom. And I know that each of these things may destroy the other. But I know, too, that without both, neither can long endure. Justice, too, is a part of life, of evolution, of man's spiritual growth. Law, freedom, and justice, this trinity is the object of my faith, unquote. Tresselini, O.P.C.I.T., page 134. Rutledge was a kindly man, and he had his moment of greatness in the Yamashita case, but his faith was a weak one. He coasted on his religious background and added nothing to it. Rather, he lived off the moral capital of his past. Rutledge's earthly trinity has proven to be empty without the triune God. Wherein is your hope? And on what ground do you stand? September 1988 Hypocritical Guilt Calcine Position Paper Number 102 On one occasion, Otto Scott and I met a young man who lost no time in telling us of his burden of, quote, guilt, unquote. His forefathers had been southern slavers, dealing in the transport and sale of black slaves. We quickly gathered that he was a sensitive soul who wore his, quote, guilt, unquote, as a badge of nobility. On another trip, I was told of a young white woman, about 20 years old, who had been raped by a black hoodlum. She refused to report this crime, nor to tell her parents of it. Like her father and mother, she was a liberal. To report the rape, she felt, would confirm, quote, a racial stereotype, unquote, and this she could not do. She spoke of understanding, quote, the suppressed rage of oppressed black men, unquote. She, too, was a, quote, noble, unquote, soul who took upon herself the guilt of past generations. Of course, all this is a false virtue which rests on a hypocritical guilt for past sins which they themselves did not commit. Neither of these two persons, nor others like them, feel any guilt for present sins in themselves. Instead, they claim a false nobility and virtue for their hypocritical guilt for the past of their people. As a student, I knew a wealthy young man who made clear that his father's business practices, whatever they were, were repugnant to him. This was his claim to a high moral ground. His immediate personal life was very bad, but he felt virtuous in condemning his father, whose money he used freely. We have a new form of Phariseeism today, which looks at the past and says, quote, I thank thee, Lord, that I am not as one of those insensitive souls, unquote. When our Lord says, quote, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, unquote, Matthew 6:34, he forbids us to borrow troubles or guilt from both the past and the future. To borrow either problems or guilt from the past or the future is ungodly. Even more, guilt is personal. It has to do with one's own sins of commission and omission. To confess our parents' sins or our ancestors' sins rather than our own is Phariseeism and a claim to being spiritually sensitive at their expense. It does not deal with one's own sins. 
Some people feel very virtuous in, quote, confessing, unquote, other people's sins. They are experts in correcting everyone around them. I regularly hear from such people about myself. Now, bad as that is, I believe it is even worse to confess our forefathers' sins and not our own. It is a violation of the law requiring us to honor our father and mother. Paul speaks of some who have their, quote, conscience seared with a hot iron, unquote. 1 Timothy 4.2, who claim a higher holiness than others. They refine their moral stance to give themselves a holier and higher way than others. To have one's conscience seared with a hot iron means to be insensitive to God, while sensitive to one's own will. It means that these insensitive people claim a higher sensitivity. Such people become adept at confessing other people's sins, and we see whites confessing black sins, blacks confessing the sins of whites, orientals confessing western sins, and so on. People love to catalog the sins of other nations, of the United States, Japan, South Africa, Guatemala, Britain, and so on and on. All of this means devaluing sin and changing its seriousness. It is routine now in much so-called evangelism to assure people that their sins are forgiven before they have admitted to or confessed sin. It is no wonder that such, quote, converts, unquote, are routinely moral problems. Cheap forgiveness shows contempt for the cross. If our sin required Christ's atoning death to treat sin and forgiveness lightly is a very serious offense against God's grace and mercy. David understood the seriousness of sin and forgiveness. He wrote, quote, I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. Unquote. Psalm 51, 3-4 Confessing other people's sin, the sin of our forefathers, or the sin of our nation in the past, is a common evasion of responsibilities in the present. One women's club revels in hearing speakers who regale them with the sins of everyone outside their own, quote, enlightened, unquote, circles. They know more, quote, dirt, unquote, or fancied, quote, dirt, unquote, about more people in groups than one can imagine. They are a happy lot of Pharisees who believe that they grow in virtue as they grow in their information about the sins of others. Such Phariseeism is common on the right and on the left. It is very popular politics. It adds nothing, however, to the moral direction of society. All morality rests on a religious faith, and it results in action. No action, no morality. Today we have a world in which everybody seems eager to correct or regulate everyone else. When a Congress, legislature, or parliament meets, it seeks more controls over others. The U.S. Congress, as an accomplished body of Pharisees, routinely exempts itself from the laws it passes to bind all others. This is Phariseeism, and it is evil. Our Lord condemns Phariseeism above all else. He accused them of shutting up the kingdom of heaven by their warped teaching. He declares, quote, Ye shall receive the greater damnation, unquote. Matthew twenty three twenty four. At the same time, our Lord requires us to seek first His kingdom and righteousness, or justice, Matthew 6.33. This is Christian reconstruction. The emphasis is on what the Lord would have us do, and it requires a faith with results, 
a faith which moves us to service and to faithfulness. When Paul was converted, his words were, quote, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Unquote. Acts 9, 6. He did not sit back to wait for heaven. He became a vineyard worker for the Lord. To be converted, to be regenerated, means to be made alive in Christ, to serve and obey Him. October 1988 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had us by his pain, the very prize. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.